Welcome along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain and behavioral sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. I'm delighted to welcome to this episode of Brain for Business, Brain for Life, Professor Mark Fenton-O'Creevy. Mark is Professor of Organizational Behavior at The Open University, based in Milton Keynes in England. Mark, great to speak to you. Good to be here, Holly. Well, Mark, much of your research is focused on decision-making, and particularly, perhaps interestingly, given the current context, decision-making under conditions of radical uncertainty. Perhaps you might start by telling us, what is radical uncertainty? Let me start off by saying a bit about the different ways in which people use this idea of uncertainty. So, um, some people use uncertainty um, in the same way as they talk about risk as a kind of um, indication that we don't know for certain that something's going to happen, but we, uh, we can guess how likely it is. You know, so for example, if I um, throw a dice, um, I actually know what the possible outcomes are. It's going to be uh, one, two, three, four, five, or six, um, mm -hmm. unless it's a 20-sided dice, say. Um, and um, I can, uh, you know, as long as the dice aren't weighted or anything like that, I can uh, make a reasonable estimation of the, the likelihood of any particular number or combinations of numbers. Uh, another way that people talk about risks and uncertainties is in terms of hazards but i i think it's important to understand that the uncertainties that face us aren't just about hazards they're also about opportunities and people in the business environment in particular often exploit uncertainty as a way of, uh, of finding profitable opportunities but i think that for me if we're talking about radical uncertainty that's something that's very different from risk, especially risk understood in a probabilistic sense. And I, I'd say there's, there's three main characteristics. So the first is we don't actually know the universe of relevant outcomes. So if we go back to that dice example, to give a sort of silly example, um, if I threw what was apparently a six-sided dice and it came up with a 10 um, somehow, then if, if that was the way the world worked when we threw dice, um, it, it wouldn't work in the same way as we normally think about risk. You know, almost anything could happen. Or, or maybe it comes up with a picture of an elephant. You could imagine ways of setting dice up on a computer where those kinds of unexpected outcomes might happen. And the thing is that biological and social systems are particularly prone to us not knowing the relevant universe of outcomes. Simple physical systems, one of the things that we can say about them generally, to use a technical term, is they're generally ergodic. What does ergodic mean? It means that if you've got a big enough data set about the past, you can describe statistically all the outcomes in the future. That's never the case with social and biological systems because they, they constantly change in ways that mean that the future is not like the past. So often our models of social and biological systems work for a while and then they don't and often they don't in quite surprising and uh, and important ways uh, the second is that probabilities are very difficult or meaningless to assign and i think you can see how that follows from the first and the third is that typically in radical uncertainty we're having trouble categorizing and framing events or the fr or we're trying to apply frames from past experience that really don't apply to what's starting to go on now you know so that 
the, the COVID-19 uh, crisis has been a very good example about that because early on lots of people and I include myself in that not just people in government were early on framing it as a bit like the flu and um, we realized over time it took some people longer than others um, that that was misleading us in very important ways about the way the situation was unfolding so you know for me radical uncertainty we don't we don't know all of the uh, relevant outcomes probabilities don't make a lot of sense to assign because uh, we just don't have the right kinds of information and actually there's a real issues about categorizing and framing what's going on so if we take that example you gave there of the flu and to compare and contrast if you like with COVID-19 is that perhaps a good way of understanding the difference between what might be considered normal uncertainty so the flu we know the flu is going to come every year and we have enough experience with it over time that we can predict within certain bounds how it will impact us and then we can respond because we have the systems and we have the the, the vaccines and so on compared to that radical uncertainty of COVID-19 is that a fair analogy well I think I'd argue that radical uncertainty is normal well, at the very least, it's much more common than we typically notice. But the thing is, much of the time it's obscured by the stability of social facts. So let me explain what I mean by social facts. Social <laughs> facts are all the things we, we face some physical facts. If I um, drop a brick, uh, it's going to fall whether I believe in gravity or not. But lots of the facts as human beings that we face are social facts. They're facts only so long as enough of us believe in them and act as if they're true. So a good example of that, and uh, I mean, actually, in some ways, it, they, we could think of them as useful social fictions more than social facts. And one a good example of a useful social fiction that works for long enough, so, so long as enough of us take its uh, factuality for granted, is money. So money only works so long as enough of us believe in it. And most of the time, it's very much a taken for granted. But if you lived in Zimbabwe at a time when inflation exceeded a trillion percent uh, then you'd be much more aware of its fragility as a social fact and I think that we're living in a time when uh, many of us have become much more sensitized to the fragility of some of the social facts around us some of the taken for granted um, and just how uncertain the world really is. Uh, ab absolutely and I think one of the ones that always strikes me is that that sort of almost taken for granted belief that you know, I will do better economically, perhaps, than my parents and my children will do better than me, and so on and so forth. But it doesn't always work that way, that different generations go up and down and uh, have, have their own stories and their own challenges. Or well, if we go back to a previous and quite recent crisis, is the financial crisis of 2007-2008. And there was a lot going on there in terms of things, uh, these kinds of uncertainties being obscured. So part of the story of the financial crisis is the value at risk models that were being used to measure risk in banks and were a basis for regulation by the regulators in, in terms of capital controls being, being set. And um, the value at risk models depend very heavily on historic data on price volatility. Now, if you take a very, very large sample, in other words, going back over decades, the problem is that over that time period, 
the way markets work and the way regulation works and so on has changed so much that the data may not be particularly relevant to the current circumstances. On the other hand, if you take a year or less, as typically was the practice at the time of volatility data, then actually that's typically going to tell you very little about how volatility is going to behave in the future. Similar problems related to the sort of pricing of some of these complex financial derivatives based on uh, subprime equity. And one of the really interesting episodes early on in the financial crisis was the chief financial officer of uh, Goldman Sachs saying that they had had 25 sigma events several days in a row. Well, 25 sigma means that this is an event that's 25 standard deviations from the uh, expected mean. And if their models were correct, which clearly they weren't, then how often would you expect to see a 25 sigma event? Well, it turns out that it's a lot less than once in the life of the total, the, in the total life of the universe. So they can't possibly have been 25 sigma events. In other words, their models just were completely inadequate to the range of potential variation. So what, what does that mean then for our decision making but between dealing with these different types of risk and uncertainty and and those supposedly 25 sigma events how, how do we grapple with them from a decision making perspective I mean, the first thing is to understand we live in a very large complex and interconnected world um, in which there's many uncertainties so how on earth do we actually function and navigate it without far more cognitive capability than we've got well, one of the ways in which we do it is we construct fictional but very useful small world representations of the world. These are our sort of the stories of how the world works that we adhere to in order to be able to make predictions about what's going to happen, in order to make sense of what are sensible actions and so on. And these stories often embed forms of modelling and calculation. And, and these tend to be useful. You know, they often... The world is as as stabilities that endure for a while and it means that they these kinds of calculations we know whether it's a net present value of a project and working out what are, what we think our cash flow will be for the next year or which categories of customers are likely to buy our products all of these things depend on us looking at a small subset of the relevant information in order to make it manageable and then using that as a basis for decision making. And these are typically useful so long as we remain aware that they're fictions and abed assumptions that will often turn out to be unfounded, especially in the longer term. But in the face of radical uncertainty, the, the real issue is that the value of making predictions is much reduced and can be dangerous to the extent that it focuses on us on the central case at the expense of remaining sensitive to signals we might be wrong. And radical uncertainty also means that there's no real basis for optimal decisions. In fact, trying to calculate them is dangerous because most optimal choice frameworks require you to make assumptions in order to do that um, that will often be unfounded in the face of radical uncertainty. And in the process, by embedding those assumptions, we make them more real to ourselves. Um, you know, and we've all seen in organisations how um, a number calculated to a great deal of precision on the basis of very dodgy data somehow becomes fixed as an organisational fact, as if it has a, a reality, rather than the more interesting question of, of how did we get to that number, 
and what are the ways in which it should be provisional and what are the things we need to attend to to make sure that we track how those things might change or our understanding might change about. So, so how does the work of Daniel Kahneman and his uh, insights on decision-making, cognitive bias, fit with, with what you're saying about decision-making under those conditions of radical uncertainty? Yeah. Um, so I don't want to dimi- diminish the value of that kind of work. I'm often, you know, not all of it, but a lot of it based on um, unpicking what goes on um, uh, when you put people through various kinds of lab experiments and very carefully designed to try and uh, unpick some of the fundamental ways in which we think. I think what goes wrong though is the interpretations that people place on it. So I would contrast it with the way in which similar kinds of things in the world of perceptual illusions get treated. There's a lot of perceptual illusions, for example, that are based on the idea that we generally expect scenes to be lit from above, which in human life, in you know, with the sun above us and uh, with most lighting in rooms coming down from above, turns out to be a remarkably sensible assumption. But we can get a bit caught out when, when people deliberately manipulate the way in which a scene is lit and show us a picture of something lit in an odd way. You know, so you've you've seen those illusions where something that is actually um, a recessed figure starts to look like a a convex figure. But in the world of um, uh, perceptual psychology, um, that's really used to help understand some of the mechanisms by which we make sense of the world, usually successfully. That same perspective really hasn't been applied so much um, in the whole judgment and decision making literature where people tend to apply an artificial norm, sort of neoclassically normative rational decision-making and probabilistic decision-making, and say, actually, when people don't fit that model, that's an indication of bias or bad thinking. But if we take some of the work done by people like uh, Gergi Garenza and colleagues, uh, one of the things that they've shown is that you take some of these biases and heuristics that get studied in the lab, put them into real world context, and sometimes they disappear. Quite often they turn out to be useful in the contexts for which they've evolved. And the question then is not how does that judgment and decision-making literature tell us about uh, about our human flaws in decision-making, but how does it shed light on how we've evolved to cope with a very uncertain world full of sparse data in which we often have to make judgments very quickly. Is that where Kahneman's System 1 and System 2 thinking comes into play? Ah, well, System 1 and System 2. I mean, the truth is, the last couple of decades of neuroscience have shown us that there is no System 1 and System 2. One uh, major review um, describes it as, at best, a heuristic. And uh, increasingly, evidence is that emotion and thinking are intertwined at all stages, right through from perception through to action, even when we're not aware of it. In terms of this kind of thinking fast and slow thing, it's clear that there are times when we think more slowly and more effortlessly. And and Kahneman tends to associate that with sort of rational, effortful reasoning. But actually, there's quite a lot of evidence that there are plenty of other things that happen quickly and automatically at times that become effortful and slow in certain circumstances. So 
they're forms of reasoning that we do very very quickly but when we, when our all of our cognitive resources are recruited to focusing on something that's when it gets slow so a good example is that face facial recognition is very quick and automatic but the process of searching for a particular face in the crowd in a crowd is slow and effortful not because it involves effortful reasoning but it requires you to recruit lots of cognitive resources and uh, extended focus on the, a, a single task so so i think that this one of the things that it seems to me that that line of research has done is it's it, it's kind of perpetuated uh, Descartes' error, which is to make this sort of mind-body distinction, you know, and the, this idea that somehow rationality is at one end and the emotions at the other end. And I think one of the important things for us to understand is that quite often our emotions are a tool of rational decision making, but that just as we can make errors of calculation, we can make errors of emotion. So an example I often use is you're driving to work, you're listening to the radio, you're chatting to a passenger, you've done this drive a lot, you're an experienced driver, so it's not getting a lot of your attention, and suddenly a small child chasing a football runs into the road. If something like that's ever happened to you, you'll, re you'll have, have had that experience of a jolt of emotion that focuses all of your attention and as, as much of your cognitive resources you can spare, which turns out to be a lot, on that single char uh, task of avoiding hitting the child. It, the experience is even uh, often that time seems to slow down a bit because you're devoting so much uh, of your cognitive resources to it. And you have the time, perhaps, if you're a good driver, to have a quick glance in the rearview mirror to check that you're not about to steer into the path of a truck overtaking you as you steer around or brake sharply or you know, whatever it is that you do. And what is happening there is it's a really good example of the role of our emotions in recruiting our attention and managing our attention. Now that's a very you know the decisions that you make in in the instant in order to avoid hitting that child are heavily emotion driven because of the way in which emotions focusing your attention but I'm not sure anybody would want to claim that that was a set of irrational decisions. So if I hear you correctly, then you're suggesting that things like emotions are a crucial part of the logic and rationality of decision making and ergo an important part of decision making under conditions of uncertainty when we are perhaps under more stress and, and emotions are higher. Have I understood that correctly? Yeah, well, I take issue with the word logic because formal logic doesn't play a big role in real-world decision-making. Formal logic is, is, a pro, is a process of deduction, and we are rarely in the situation where we know things well enough that we can, we can engage in formal deduction. Most of the time, we're engaging in induction or abduction from, uh, uh, from quite sparse data and making best guesses about what's going on or trying to fit new events into old ways of thinking about them. Okay, okay, but but the stress and emotional or emotion anyway play plays a role in, in all of that. My, one of my favourite quotes is by John Aspinall, who's dead now, but was a casino, a casino owner and took a lot of risks in his own life. So, uh, he said, "Reason is the undertaker we send in after the event." I think that's often quite a good description about how reasoning works: is that we make. Uh, a lot of intuitive decisions that often if we have expertise in an area and experience that's built up over a good time period 
often turn out to be effective decisions. We have all sorts of ways of making inferences other than formal reasoning. But quite often we then need to justify what we've done to other people. And quite often experts will have a strong hunch about something, often that turns out to be justified later, um, that they then find it quite hard to unpack their reasoning. So quite often the reasons that we give people turn out to be not terribly well coupled, or the reasons we give ourselves turn out to be not terribly well coupled to the uh, why we made that decision in the first place. Surely though, and it's interesting you mentioned the casino owner, because I always think of casinos not just as a place for gambling, but a place where there are massive amounts of data collected. Surely in, in the world of, of big data and artificial intelligence, presumably we've come a long way in, in terms of re reducing many forms of uncertainty because we're able to access so much more data and as a consequence work out many more potential outcomes and, and work with those. Yeah, I, I think certainly um, various forms of processing big data and uh, artificial intelligence, which people often mean machine learning by when they talk about it nowadays, can be useful in supporting human decision making. But as decision makers, artificial intelligence systems are very fragile um, systems. Uh, and why is that? It's because that First of all, you depend on having very large amounts, uh, much more data than humans typically need to make judgments on, to learn to make judgments on. Very large amounts of data that is in important ways unbiased. And secondly, you rely on the fact that the training data is a good guide to what will happen in the future. And in complex and uncertain worlds, that's almost always not the case. So. You know, for that reason, we're finding that autonomous vehicles behave really very well on training circuits, uh, you know, that have been laid out for them to, uh, to function on. They can, in some ways, they can uh, produce uh, superior performance in terms of braking when a hazard appears and so on uh, to humans. But they're turning out to be very poor at dealing with contexts that they're not familiar with that humans are much more capable of. You know, so if a human being sees something that looks like a, uh, that looks a bit like a cow and a bit like a snail charging out onto the road in front of them, they can adapt to that sort of new context really quite quickly. Or if they see a sky painted on a truck, they're much better than an AI system at recognizing that actually it is a whole truck with a sky painted on it, not two vehicles with, uh, that are stationary with a big gap between them showing the sky. And, and that, that's interesting. So I guess picking up on my own point there about the, the casino, no matter how many different combinations there might be in, for example, blackjack or roulette, they can be calculated. All of the different potential outcomes and odds can essentially be calculated, whereas a car going down the road might encounter billions if not trillions of different possible combinations of events at any one time given everything happening around yeah yeah no, absolutely um that's not to say that uh, there are no uncertainties in um, gambling environments you know people regularly try to cheat and people regularly try to stop them and it's constant cat and mouse game you know so you have casinos where you will find loaded dice or particular forms of cheating on the casino side you'll find people who develop strategies for either exploiting that cheating themselves or finding ways around um, some of the problems here. For example, 
mechanical ways of color counting and so on. There's even a, a mathematician in the States who, um, who trained as a, ma a magician who can reliably make a coiny flips, land head or tails uh, at his choice. So as soon as you have humans in the system, the, the sort of random properties of physical systems uh, can be manipulated in various ways. So it's no coincidence that the study of probability originated in, in gambling situations. But uh, even in that almost pure probability environment, there can be quite important uncertainties because of the way in which human beings interact with them. Uh, absolutely. And, and from that then, what implications do you, do you think there are for, for leaders and indeed for organisations that, that are grappling with conditions of uncertainty and, and particularly radical uncertainty? How, how can they act? How can they respond? I think, first of all, if we think about the COVID crisis, it's turning out to be an opportunity for many organisations to revisit decision-making processes, to consider how they can be more sensitive to uncertainty, how, you know, how they can be better prepared for unfolding uncertainties, because certainly there's lots of organisations being taken very badly by surprise by how this is unfolded. And I think that secondly, one of the things that's important to recognise is that in the face of radical uncertainty, anticipatory thinking um, as Gary Klein has pointed out in his work, is less about making predictions than a kind of a kind of expert gambling with what to pay attention to to help you understand how a situation's unfolding. You know, I think that, you know that's probably one of the things that could have been done better in the COVID crisis at government level, is rather than focusing on trying to make the best possible predictions using models of the evolution of the crisis based on very uncertain assumptions about reproduction rates, uh, death rates and so on, that much more attention to, care, uh, to careful monitoring of data that would have helped us understand earlier the unfolding shape of the crisis uh, would have been very valuable. So I think one, one of the things that I've, I've been thinking about quite a lot recently is strategic risk monitoring arrangements inside companies and public organizations and that you know typically these risk frameworks have two axes one is impact and the other is likelihood and the ones that get marked red are the high impact high likelihood ones and i think that likelihood framework is a bit of a bit problematic when you are facing uh, radical uncertainty so one of the ways of thinking about uh, those kinds of approaches is to say, well, you know, what's it really for? What it's really for is for determining what gets attention. And so rather than framing it just in terms of likelihood, one of the ways of thinking about it is, is thinking quite broadly about what are the hazards and also the opportunities that we may face under different states of the world and different scenarios. And less what are the mitigating actions that we take than what is it that we need to make attention that we need to pay attention to so that we we don't become blindsided by evolving crises and hazards so it's it's thinking differently about the the situations we face yeah i mean it's it, it's it, it's a, it's about reconceptualizing uh, risk monitoring frameworks as as frameworks for the prioritization of what gets attention and taking uncertainty seriously in that uh, and are there potential downsides to that approach as well uh, that, that, are, that someone should be aware of? If, for example, someone in an organisation leader were to adopt that approach, what are the potential downsides that they might face? As any 
um, senior manager be aware, one of the resources in any firm in shorter supply is managerial attention. So if you're going to give something managerial att attention, then that attention isn't available for other things. So it, it isn't an easy call. But the point is, you have to go through that process of thinking about thinking prospectively about what should we be paying attention to in order that we don't get caught out by things that we really aren't expecting at the moment. And making sure that you have your eyes open, not just for the white swans, but also the, the, the black swans, as, as Tyler might have put it. Yeah, and well, and, and some of it is, some of it is, you know, of course, there's always unknown unknowns. But one of the things that um, a colleague of mine who's a, a climate scientist and does a lot of work on modelling is very keen on is the notion of known unattendeds or known neglecteds is his phrase. And of course, if you, you know, when you're putting together any kind of model and we do a lot of modeling in, in organizations, you have to make it computable. You have to make assumptions to make it simple enough to be modelable. You have to take account of what you can and recognize there are some things you won't be able to take account of. You know, so a very good example of that is in early European uh, weather modeling on computers, there wasn't enough computing power to model the Alps and the impact those had on the weather. So a lot of those early models just didn't take account of the Alps in looking at the evolution of weather systems. Now that was a known neglected, so people with some expertise in all of this could make some rough and ready judgments about what that might be doing to their weather models. You know, similarly, let's think about a, a much more business example of customer segmentation. Any kind of categorization really depend and analysis depends on assuming that there's there's categories of the same thing that largely behave the same as each other. We know that that's not a really good assumption when it comes to consumers in, in consumer segments. And that, that's often one of the things that gets us into trouble. And yet, you know, we don't have the resources or the time or sufficient capacity really to, to do things on a much more micro level. Although some of the sort of big data approaches are starting to get companies a bit more in that direction. So for anyone thinking about their customer segmentation in uh, marketing, then one of the things to really understand is that a known neglected is the lack of homogeneity in segment groups. Uh, and, and I guess it's also then, then by extension, those those customer groups we're, we're, we're not going to work with and what, what are the implications of that in terms of the business and so on? Yeah. But I, I think there's there's some other things that are quite important too, and it's about some of the ways in which we organise. So, I mean, I think first is that you know typically when dealing with uncertain futures, we create and find compelling stories about how the future is going to unfold or how the impacts of our decisions will unfold, and those stories uh, can be quite emotionally compelling, and indeed the calculations we make to support them. And they can act to obscure important uncertainties, especially if we become too attached to one story at the expense of alternative ones. And the thing is that engaging with the uncertainties produced by what we don't know about the future can produce anxiety. And that means that it can be a motivation to ignore or downplay the uncertainties or in, it, quite importantly, and this is really important for leaders, incentivize others to reduce our perceptions of uncertainty. 
So Nokia is a really good example where in the period before their price collapsed uh, massively in the face of competition from Apple, which they hadn't sufficiently accounted for, some good research showing that senior managers had become very scared of the challenges facing them and middle managers had become very scared of the senior managers. And that fear and the incentives that senior managers created for people to overpromise and to disguise difficulties really blindsided the senior managers in terms of their understanding that a promised new software system for the phones was was really unlikely to be delivered in any reasonable timescale. You know, similarly, there's good research that shows how some firms operate systems internally that are very good at protecting senior managers from customer complaints. Again, a really important signal about how things might be going wrong or how you might be going wrong. I think the other thing is that there are ways organisationally of doing these things better. So for me, a really nice example is the New York Federal Reserve Bank, who've set up a department for applied critical thinking that reports directly to the bank president. And their job is to question key assumptions underpinning policy decisions, uh, drawing on uh, multiple alternative perspectives. And they do really interesting work. So it's about how do you organisationally cope with uncomfortable knowledge? And I think for leaders, on the one hand, there's the question about how are you organising in order to make sure you're not obscuring uncertainties? But it's also an issue of courage. It's about having the courage and resilience to act like you mean it while remaining open to early signals and different perspectives that suggest you might have made the wrong call. And, and I think that that example you gave is really interesting. It's almost like having a, a devil's advocate in-house to, to challenge and to question on, on a permanent and ongoing basis. Um, I, I think another uh, approach is, is very broad thinking about possible states of the world in the future. Uh, that kind of scenario planning, but there's, a, there's an important twist to this because quite often what happens is scenarios start to be treated as predictions about the future and that becomes a sort of central scenario that people become focused on. And, and organisations are typically very poor at having a broad enough range of scenarios. You know, so for example, oil companies who do a lot of scenario planning prior to the major drop in oil price some years ago had been considering scenarios with a big range of uh, oil prices. But that range of oil prices, even in their most extreme scenarios, did not encompass the price that oil fell to. The issue really is using this very broad range of scenarios, not as a form of prediction, but as a kind of test for the resilience of different plans and strategies you might take. Now, which are the ones that work, that still work in some way, regardless of uh, the scenario or across the broadest range of scenarios? And a really nice example of that is the thinking that went on about the Thames barrier. At the time the Thames barrier was being planned, uh, we knew there was something called climate change and we knew that it could affect flood risk to London. But nobody had any idea about the the, the scale of that uh, amplified flood risk that would come about through climate change and they recognised the uncertainty. So what they did is they, they looked at a very wide range of different kinds of approaches and they had to take into account political realities about what funding might be plausible and so on. 
and they tested them against the broadest possible range of scenarios. And the one that performed best for them was it was a very simple idea, at least in retrospect, a very simple idea. It wasn't obvious at the start, uh, which was to build a really, really big concrete base and put a small uh, flood barrier on top of it on the grounds that that gives them the option to build quite a large range of different size flood barriers as uh, understanding about the flood risk that was being brought about by climate change advanced. So Mark, where can people find out more? Do you have a website or a blog that people can look at? Yeah, I mean, I'll make, I'll, I'll make a few suggestions. And so first of all, you'll find some of my thinking about this in recent blogs on my blog site, which is emotionalfinance.net. Emotional finance is all one word. Somewhere else I would really recommend a book by the economist John Kay and Mervyn King, who is a former governor of the Bank of England. Their book, Radical Uncertainty, Decision Making Beyond the Numbers, I think is really good. And if you've got the appetite for something a little bit more academic, there's an edited book by Richard Bronk and Jens Beckett called Uncertain Futures, Imaginaries, Narratives and Calculation in the Economy. And I think all of those um, are, are really good places to go for people who want to explore some of these ideas further. Okay, that sounds great. Well, look, Professor Mark Fantineau-Creevy, thank you very much for your time today. It's been, uh, been great speaking with you. You're very welcome. theme song, La La Song, Electronic Beat Time and Dream Sequence by Lorenzo's Music is licensed under an attribution, share alike license.